Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome back, Limited Upside Podcast. I'm Mike Prada. Today is, uh, we're in February, right? February what? February something? Fourth. February 4th. The voice you hear, that is Sirit Zoe from Yahoo Sports, who is kind enough to join us on what I believe is February 4th. Sirit, how are you? Um, <laughs> I like I like the relativism about dates. Yeah. I think we could use more of that. I mean, they I'm all... doing great things. How are you? All- I'm good. They all end in Y anyway, so what difference does it make? <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Uh, ben Epstein is exactly. also here. <laughs> ben Epstein is also here. Hi, Ben. Hey, guys. hey there. I'm just enjoying the, the conversation. Um, and I'm also a fan of uh, relativism when it comes to time and space and dates as well. We're just pre-NBA All-Star game right now, which is happening. As oh, yeah. Today, apparently. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about that at some point if we want. Do we uh, want to? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I think it'll just lead us to like where eighty percent of this podcast is gone over the last four months and into some kind of debate about the health relationship to COVID and and is it prudent? And then we'll end up in the full circle of the NBA needs it to make money, uh, and that'll be how that conversation goes. I did. Enjoy yeah, I think it. you pretty much covered it. Yep, there at the end. I, I did. really enjoyed doing this podcast. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy how Darren Fox was like, yeah, it's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. I appreciate that realism. But no, uh, we're here to talk about other things other than the All-Star Game. And I'm going to leave this open-ended because, Sir, one of the things I love about your writing is that you have an ability to connect the sort of human, social, psychological, whatever you want to call it, larger forces that are powering the things that everybody else is talking about, right? So, like, this is the forces behind the forces, and so I asked you this, like, totally open-ended. Like, what do you think is the most interesting thing happening in the NBA right now? Mm. One of the most interesting. What's the most interesting thing happening to me right now? Um, what is the most interesting thing happening in the NBA right now? That's a really good question. That's not COVID, by the I way. Go... Not COVID. Let's, like, throw COVID out of there. Obviously, that's a big story, but... It is, but like also COVID is COVID is far past the point of being interesting anymore. You're just kind of trying to you're trying to square yourself away with the logic that is being used and just you know, just just do do what you can with it. That's like I feel like what we're all doing in real life as well. Um I was actually I was actually thinking about it, and I know you said not COVID, but we'll do like, a, well, I, I know what I want to talk about basketball-wise, too, but like a quick thing on COVID, mm-hmm. like De'Aaron Fox calling it stupid. He's obviously right, right? Like, just there's, it just doesn't, it doesn't clear any bar of rational logic to have an all-star game when all, there's all these restrictions. And I think that on 
a personal level, a lot of people are experiencing this as well. Like I'm from Alberta and I can't go see any family members. Like it's, it's pretty, it's illegal to have any sort of uh, indoor social gathering right now at all. Um, but the malls are open hmm. and what you have is a whole bunch of people that are really upset that they can't see their family members, especially during the holidays. And like, you know, especially at a time when everyone's really, really, really going through it and can do some social interaction, but it's like totally cool to go shopping. And it really, um, I mean, it, it just delegitimizes the rules in a lot of ways. Right. Like, I think it's made people just feel like get more lax and just like, you know, start to start, start to just be like, you know, bargain with themselves, I guess, a little bit, right? And I, I wonder, I wonder if it's not going to do the same thing in the NBA because the players are being put under some pretty draconian restrictions that will and are impacting their their mental health and you know just their day to day life. And at the same time, it's like the NBA is also telling them that it's totally cool to go to Atlanta and we'll all get together, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's like. If I was a player, I'd be like, well, how much do you really care about this? You know? Yeah. It, it, the, the amount of hypocrisy that goes into creating a large gathering when you won't let people dap at halftime or postgame is difficult to, to kind of pull together. I, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's a number of things messaging-wise, but it's also the vast majority of the NBA does not become an all-star. So then they just get multiple days off to go back and do – whatever it is they need to do um, or want yeah, to do. That's a really good point. Like there's no, there's no guarantee. There's no way that people who haven't seen their family in this long that travel all the time, that every single one of them is going to abide by the rules. Right. That old, like they're safer in a bubble together. They're safer in the same city together or under these restrictions of working together than mm-hmm. they are in their normal life. So therefore it's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you go down that line of path. Yeah. yeah. By the way, if there's any if there's anything goes wrong in Atlanta and any anybody is compromised, that, that only compromises the best players in the, in the NBA. Right. By the way, that's, that's totally a good a good plan. Yeah. Do, do you, I wonder if the play the star players like more of them are actually not like Darren Fox and more of them actually want this? You know, consequences we damned. If it's like, God damn, can we have some slice of normalcy? Can we get some element of our usual weekend like sort of? getting this recognition i mean you talk to players and they hate all-star weekend on some level but then they also love all-star weekend because they hate all the things that they have to go to but then they love everything that happens after (laughs) the things they have to go to so i wonder if how many players are there a lot of players who are not like darren fox who are like yeah i would love to go to atlanta i don't care i think players want to be all-stars while not going to (laughs) all-star yep like they'd rather be in turks and caicos i remember i was like when i was flying to i was flying to charlotte for the all-star game and I ran into Nick Nurse, who was on his way to, uh, like, I think, you know, some hot destination with his wife because the Raptors that year came in second and, and the Bucks coaching staff got to go there. And I was like, man, like, I don't know whether I should say sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> you didn't make it because this seems, this seems not bad. I think the players want to make the All-Star game, but instead of be um, be an all-star they want to be in Turks and Caicos instead and you know who wouldn't want to be there so I get it you also never want to you never want the NFL to lead the logic game right like if 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 the NFL is going to cancel the Pro Bowl and essentially just have their players play Madden against each other 
while still mm-hmm. getting recognition for contractual reasons. Like we know how that works. There are definitely contracts. Mm-hmm. There's incentives to be an all-star. Call someone an all-star. Great. Um, mm-hmm. And then have them play NBA 2K against each other from the comfort of their room because that's mostly mm-hmm. what they do in their free time anyhow. Have it curated so that there's a camera in front of everyone's face. You're getting more FaceTime, more personality, all mm-hmm. the things that you want from NBA weekend, NBA All-Star weekend, without putting every single team's <laughs> best player uh, at a health risk. Um, and look, Atlanta's a fun city, and Georgia's a pretty open state. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, things could, could, could turn quickly, but um, that's yeah. certainly There's no doubt about that. Yeah. yeah, I wonder how pissed off Adam Silver is about the fact that he has to like go through this exercise and take take the hit, um, just because of the TV contracts. Because TNT needs something really, because that dude does not care about the All Star game. <laughs> like, something, something. I feel like he's been like he's been there's been like an inside job in the NBA to sabotage the All Star game pretty much since he got <laughs> since he became the commissioner. Now he has to he has to throw one in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> Well, if it's been an inside job, the Elam ending t- twist last year was counterproductive. It'd be really funny if they thought, yeah, that's true. If they if they thought that would suck and it ended up being like the best basketball anyone's ever seen. I don't understand why the Elam ending isn't just instituted in every game ever. It is, it is so self-evidently perfect. I wrote about this right after it happened. It was like, it takes out this construct that is actually ruining the game, which is the clock. It's like more pure basketball. Yeah. No, well, there's no fouling. There's no like, no one's trying to kill the clock. Like you realize how much the clock actually controls all of the game all the time. Once it's finally off, that was a, that was really cool to watch. That, that I agree completely. And it'd be really difficult to tell. <laughs> this is the other part of uh, the silver mandate is getting gambling to be as synonymous with the sport uh, as the game itself. And uh, I hope that doesn't work. <laughs> it's already working. Um, yeah, I know. So, you know, getting lines and spreads to, to fit into the Elam ending will be really difficult. And even just last night, I'm not a gambler. I live in a state where I can't do that anyhow in, in California here. Uh, legally, that is. But even watching the Sixers game last night, being up 14 or something, with like a minute and a half left, knowing it was a seven-point spread, because I looked it up right around that point, mm-hmm. And that the game then went to five points, and then they called a little ticky-tack foul on Embiid, who hit both free, free throws, so the game pushed at seven points. And that happens on a nightly basis in multiple games a night and throws millions of dollars around and creates, unfortunately, a lot of interest in the game that isn't because the people love the game itself. So that is a huge part mm-hmm. of this. Fact, I think it's the footing with which the NFL succeeds at this point, is if you eliminated fantasy football and gambling. Tomorrow, 30% of the audience wouldn't give a shit about football. Yeah, I, I think that's bad, but I understand why the NFL thinks that's good. Uh, the But it's funny, the Elam ending thing, and then I, I actually want to know what your most interesting basketball, or at least basketball adjacent story is. The Elam ending, all the reasons you said it's great is all the reasons that they're not going to adopt it. It's too much change. Nobody likes change that significant, you know. But everybody liked it. Everybody liked it. Yeah, but this is this is the same league that took like 35 years to understand that three is worth more than two. So I'm just saying, yeah, I may or may not be researching that right now for the book. But uh, (laughs) yeah. So anyway, uh, most interesting basketball story or basketball Jason story. The Nets. Let's talk about the Nets. You called them anti-heroes in a recent column. Uh, 
basically kind of in another world, I think your argument was they would be villains, but they're sort of, yeah. they aren't really villains anymore. So they're anti-heroes. What do you mean by that? Well, we've lost our ability to anoint villains at this point. <laughs> um, after, after LeBron did the decision and everyone overreacted, like that was the first like big social social media storm I think in the NBA. Like that was like LeBron made a Twitter two days before. I actually wrote an article about this. It was one of the last articles I wrote at SB Nation, I believe. Like mm-hmm. it's on the it was the anniversary of the. Well, actually, it wouldn't have been on the anniversary, but I LeBron remember. made a Twitter like right before um right before doing the decision. So it was like right when people were kind of getting online. And we all kind of went crazy, and then a year or two passed, and we were like, wow, probably shouldn't have cared so much about where a guy wants to play, right? And I mm-hmm. think ever since then, like, we've been a lot more, obviously, like, you know, the player empowerment era, the way that people think about superstars leaving green places has changed so much, uh, which is good. Like, this is this is good. Um, you know, we should all kind of, you know, open up our idea about, like, what people can do like people should be able to do whatever they want to but the, even the fact that i'm saying that the fact that i have to preface this by like saying hey i totally believe that you know these guys should have their free will it's kind of why like you can't really have like a flat like these are heroes and villains type of mm-hmm. type of dichotomy between t- teams anymore um it's unfortunate for the nba because it works really really well um the heat for the like, heat built versus bought I think they did that like pretty much every year because they faced the Spurs twice. Mm-hmm. They faced the Thunder. Um, and it didn't really matter against the Mavericks because they were the most hated team in America. And you didn't have to come up with a reason for why at that point. Um, at this point, that's not really where we're at because like rightfully so, a lot of other voices have propped up and said, hey, well, why are these guys villains? You guys like you guys think these guys are villains because like they're you know, they're exercising their right to, to leave. And like, why would we even be cheating, cheering for like a GM over, over a player anyway, same things like that. Right. Which, which like, kind of like now that there's so many different types of fans, it kind of, it complicates the narratives a little bit. And I think that's, it's, it's largely pretty cool, but like the reason I, I came to the conclusion that they're anti-heroes is because we're having like a much more complicated conversation around who uh each of these guys are which i don't think we would have been having 10 years ago 10 years ago it would have just been like yeah these guys teamed up and blah 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 like you know kevin durant bernard you know Kyrie Irving's not showing up for games and like and, and, and like it would just be like you know it'd be very easy to just classify right. them as that and now like people are asking far more questions about like okay like well why is this the case and right. are certain things more important than basketball and like a bunch of a bunch of interesting questions so it's much more of a conversation than it used to be. And James Harden is flaunting COVID protocols to get himself traded. Right. You know, and somehow right. and even... That's, that's a big one. And somehow even that hasn't inspired... Maybe it's because Harden has, like, kind of his legion of defenders that complicate the conversation. But you would think that if anyone is a villain by our social standards, it would be someone like that. He's probably the closest thing, also just because of, like, a, because of the way that he plays basketball, like, the way that he subverts the game and makes it... And frankly, he obviously makes the game less boring. I don't think it's mm-hmm. really a debate at this point. Um, I think at the same time, though, for me, like he makes it he makes it more boring aesthetically on a micro level, but he also makes it more interesting on a macro level as well. Right. Um, and I've actually enjoyed him with the Nets because it's not every possession anymore. 
Um, so like just, just giving him, gi- giving the floor a little bit more variety has just allowed me to enjoy Harden way more. Now when he's at ISOs, I'm just like, Oh yeah, I wonder what, what he's going to do. Whereas like before it was like one of four options and you've been watching it all game. You're just like, oh, okay, like, like whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. Floater, law, floater, floater, law, floater. Like, yeah, I'm done. Like, I'm <laughs> it's like a, it's like a decision tree. Basically, yeah, it's really like, is. It really is. What, yeah, Ben, what do you think about the idea of Nets as antiheroes? I mean, what is what are the Nets inspiring you? Um. Well, I, first off, like basketball intellectual curiosity. I, I think we probably could go back on this podcast for many years, and there are three guys who I've always talked about as being like unstoppable offensive powers. Different, completely different, actually, in in a lot of ways, and what they can fulfill offensively but ultimately equally unstoppable. And without, you know, with the exception of Harden, the unstoppable offensive ability is why two times, you know, Kevin Durant iced NBA finals with 26 foot three pointers off the dribble. Uh, and why Kyrie took over an NBA finals as well offensively. Um, and essentially was an unstoppable isolation force. And then putting that onto a team with no identity outside of the fact that the three of them play together, which is different. It, this isn't like, you know, LeBron is a, is a um, LeBron is a, is a way of thinking about basketball into himself. He brings a culture that is predicated around him. He joined the Heat into a culture that already existed, led by a, another unmistakable NBA personality in Wade. And this isn't that. These are three guys with redemption-ish stories around them, and in different ways. KD physically hardened because he quit on a team and Kyrie because people think of him now as this space cadet outside the box thinker and not this like enigmatic, amazing offensive basketball player. And so when the narrative around all these guys isn't even what they both or all three, I should say, are uniquely incredible at, which is, in my opinion, offensive basketball with the caveat that they can all play defense to a degree when they try, like Mike and I were putting out a TNT primetime game against the Clippers and all of a sudden, you know, KD and Harden are doing up. (laughs) Yeah, that that was kind of funny. That's like, oh, yeah, they're they're playing good defense for, like, that game. (laughs) Yeah, and and look, like, I've had enough coaches in my life, and I think I may even heard this coach speak at one point from uh, from Coach Lavin, who was a friend of mine out here in L.A. for a while, is that offense is a gift and defense is a decision, and they can all decide to play defense, and they all have the gift. And so the thing that like I've just been enamored with is number one, Harden came in to be deferential, which I figured he would. Katie looks like a completely healed. You wouldn't know he tore his Achilles and took two years off from basketball. And Kyrie is the type of guy who can take off two weeks of NBA basketball, float around in the ethos, in the uh, not the ethos, in the, the cosmos, uh, the, the, the cosmos, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the ether, and and come back and still be the you no. Know, the, the best player on the court with, with five NBA All-Stars. And so I just think, like, that's not something that you can really say, number one, that's happened a whole lot in basketball. And number two, like, we're not rooting against a dynastic team like the Heat were or like Golden State were, where they're not, they're not evil. It's not like a, a good guy, bad guy, but you root against sustained success if you're not the fan base of that team. And that's not the Nets. The Nets have never won anything. They're barely, they barely have home fans. I lived, you know, a block away from the Barclays Center since it was built uh, prior to moving out here to L.A. And, you know, you go to a Nets game, there's a handful of Nets fans. And then the other team, the other team's fans. And then right. the transplants are just there to see games 
take clients or whatever. Yeah. I think so they don't have that baked in things yeah. you do against. Yeah. The, the other thing true. too. The other thing too is that none of them are like kind of nets in the sense that Steph Curry is a warrior or LeBron again is sort of just every team is just a LeBron. Uh, but some of these other super teams, they at least had one guy who was like kind of, they were yeah. jo- was being joined. Absolutely. That's Joe Harris. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Joe Harris is a net. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So <laughs> that's like kind of another, that's another element of it that seems hard to believe. There's is, also, is there a net? Yeah. Like really, is there a net? Like, like the like the actual centerpiece guy who's been who's been the net like the guy you could point to Brooke Lopez yeah like what does it mean what does it mean to be a net yeah that's a good question I guess you got oh, drafted by the Nets well okay Karis Levert and Jared Allen were probably Nets yeah, yeah they were but now they're Cavs and Pacers so. right. But I think in, in, in spirit, like, you know, because the Nets were sort of touted themselves as this developmental, like, sort of brick by brick, like, kind of culture team. And then suddenly they're just like, ah, screw that. We can get these three guys. We don't need that stuff. Right. And it feels weird. You know, and you would do that if you were them, too. But it, it doesn't – I think part of it maybe the weirdness of the Nets comes down to, one, all the stuff you're talking about. Two, there isn't, like, a hierarchy. I mean, Kyrie – Remember when Carrie said that like anyone can be the coach? Yeah. I mean that that exactly. was Yeah. <laughs> in like a weird way, like that's not like that that kind of is what happens in an organization, but he almost like said the quiet yeah. part too out loud. So it doesn't yeah, exactly. sound, <laughs> it doesn't sound right. Exactly. And, like that's how it works, especially when you have three superstars in a team. Like, yeah, like now she's the coach, but like it's not coaching as you or I really underst- understand it, or right. like the pub the public understands it. Right. So there's no like hierarchy to the team. It's just they they all kind of exist on like kind of it's like an organization that has like a bunch of people on the same level and we may not know this from experience but uh you know people like that but it's also there's like an excess to that team i mean you posted this stat just now on twitter like the top 3 guys in most isolations per game all play for the Brooklyn Nets in the NBA mm-hmm. and so there's like this excess of that in this like sort of absence of a lot of other qualities where you kind of think of a basketball team or a basketball organization is the, the whole makes up more than the sum of its parts. There's just mm-hmm. this like kind of balance to it. Yeah. And the Nets are just the opposite of that. Yeah. I mean, the, the Nets don't have history, right? Like they don't have a lot of the things that we, um, that we associate with, with sports. Like a lot of the stuff, Ben, like you said, like, I think, I think that completely encapsulates like what the Nets experience it. it is like it's this totally new thing that we don't have like we don't have a way to we don't have like a a formula from the past in order to better understand it uh like you have two guys that have like two of the guys have teamed up left teams that they won rings on like Mm -hmm. that's not really that common either um especially kd leaving leaving a big market Mm -hmm. um or like a or an attractive market i guess i get the base big market Mm um but yeah, it's it's interesting, but on the court though, I don't really feel like they feel like that. Like with the the ISO stat that I put out, like I was pretty agno- I'm pretty agnostic about it. But anything, I'm more, I'm for more ISOs with them. <laughs> um, I love watching Kyrie and KD ISO. I think it's wonderful basketball, and I think at the extent that Harden does it now, he's like ex- exceptionally creative player playing with new teammates. Um, I'm in, I'm enjoying watching him get to know the new toys. You know, it's been fun. Yep. Um, 
and that that was kind of that's that's the draw of this team like you kind of know that on each possession like one of those guys is going to be doing the thing um I think they found a way on offense so far like things are going pretty well and like everything is kind of melding together really well like Joe Harris is never going to shoot a contested three again in his life Mm -hmm. um DeAndre Jordan is is not doing great on defense but once he figures out how to catch Harden's lobs like you know I think he's probably not going to be not going to be missing a lot of shots either. Not that he really misses a lot of shots in the first place. Uh, but I think they've connected. I think they've connected on offense, and I think it flows pretty well, and I think it looks good. I enjoy watching them. Um, and maybe that can be, like, you know, they're going to build this thing up, and I think also as we pay more attention to them, like, part of what we're talking about is our jobs. Like, it's our jobs to give this thing a story, right? Like, to to right. to make it make sense. And as we get to know them better and – and stuff like I think I think it'll slowly kind of come together but right now yeah they are just like like Kyrie was floating around in the ether (laughs) or the cosmos (laughs) is that they're they're all three of these guys specifically Katie and Kyrie they want to be in control of that narrative they don't want other people to tell their stories they're pretty I think in Katie's case He's someone who has always combated this idea of like what he does behind the scenes, uh-huh. what he does in front of the camera, who he is publicly, who he is professionally from a business standpoint that has nothing to do with basketball. I feel like, I feel like Kyrie, every time I hear Kyrie talk, I'm like, well, shit, he's one of the smartest guys in the NBA. He's one of the most interesting guys in the NBA. And I don't know how or why he takes attention or picks up attention for things that are outlandish when he could be having a much more thoughtful conversation that a lot of people in the, in the league couldn't mm-hmm. have. It's just, he's a super smart guy. Yeah. Now doing mm-hmm. that would require actually talking <laughs> to people. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You, you can't have a conversation if you won't speak. That's true. That's true. Um, and then it's just like, look, there are coaches in NBA hall of famer who we, who's going to get no credit and only get hit if, if things mm-hmm. go and if they go well, great. You have three of the best players in the NBA. I also think it's just like, from a strictly X's and O's standpoint, like they never have a lineup on the court that doesn't have either Kyrie, Katie, or Harden. That's a remarkable thing. I mean, that is, that's not a luxury that most teams, championship teams over the last 20 years, call it whatever, 15 years of the big three era or whatever, have ever been able to say, uh, outside of really the Warriors and the Heat for a little bit, that you're going to have one of the best players in the NBA on the court no matter what your rotation is, and usually two of them, and that they're going to complement each other. Because these dudes, like, you can already see, they trust each each other enough that if you're Mm -hmm. making a pass, if you're the ISO guy for the possession, and you're attacking a side that you know that the first pass is going to go to Kyrie or KD or Harden or whoever it may be, or Joe Harris wide open for a three who's a plus shooter, just a good player in general. Like, there isn't like you have to learn to trust that, like, fourth or fifth option. In order to be successful, it's built in that you're essentially only passing it to NBA Hall, you know, Hall of Fame Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the final 10 minutes of the game. I mean, I have this stat from the other night that Katie had 28 on 13 shots against the Clippers. Harden had 23 on 15 and Kyrie had 39 on 23. Like that level of efficiency for three guys in one game Mm -hmm. being guarded by Paul George (laughs) and Kawhi Leonard is like, you know, 
that was a great taste. And I think a lot of folks like ourselves are like, oh, that's a, a good way to perceive how they'll play come playoff time, you know, a little bit. Yeah. Heightened. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it looked like it worked. I did love Kawhi's quote at the end of the game. And they asked him, like, was it playoff level intensity? And he was like, no, there were no fans there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very- oh, man. <laughs> The, the, Two things. I miss covering Kawhi so much because of things like that. <laughs> Dry humor. He is so literal. My favorite thing was when I think it was in the second round, the Raptors found themselves down 2-1 against the Sixers, and somebody asked him, where you guys go from here? And he said, home to Toronto. That was amazing. It was the best moment of my life. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. I think I, I think the Nets have like this luxury of of getting to play simple basketball, and I don't mean simple basketball in the terms of like you know what Houston did, where where it was really really simple basketball. It was just a whole bunch of guys standing around. Like the Nets actually have some pretty nice off ball movement, um, and they're running like they they're still running the same sets they were running earlier in the season um, before they got Harden, um, and it's it's really like it's it's allowed them to just simplify their decision-making a lot. Like when you see the floor, you watch a lot of teams, like what I like to do oftentimes, like I was literally like like watching the Pelicans, for example, Um, like Zion had one of his, he had the best defensive game of his career. Like I was just kind of like looking over that again. And it's like, and we'll talk about the Pelicans, like a different day, I guess. But um, that's a team that I'll often like, slow down and kind of like go back and be like wait what actually happened there and who had to move where because they're clogged up and they have to do a bunch of different things in order to in order to be able to score it's like okay like uh, you know Adams and Zion are going to try to run like an elbow pick and roll and if if Bledsoe doesn't cut it exactly this moment like it's not going to be it's not going to be open like things like that the Nets don't have to do things like that right at all they it's can a, run a pick and roll and it's already spaced out. And like, the, yes, they'll do some relocating and they'll move around because like, that's what a smart basketball team does, but they don't have to like go very, very deep into the bag. And it really like, it makes it, things simple for everybody. Like it, obviously the three of those guys can make good decisions. Although I believe Kyrie should be making some better passing decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even within that context, um, even with him being as efficient as he is, like he's probably like the one guy that's probably ch- changed this game the least. Um, and if they really want to optimize, I think he's going to have to change a little bit, but, but like, that's, that's besides the point. Like it also, it makes, it makes things easier on Jeff Green. Like Jeff Green can now like, kind of like, you know, like be like throw a lob to, to DeAndre Jordan because like, it's that easy. That's like the one or two decisions that he has. Like he's right. either going to shoot or like, or, you know, like one of one of Harris or DeAndre is going to be open or maybe like one of the stars will be open. Um, it's just really, it makes things, it makes things easier to do. Yeah. It, you basically just described what I is sort of the framing of the the book I'm writing on a larger level, which is it's a whole lot easier to play offense when your your court is one and a half times bigger than the other team's court when you have the same number of players. Mm-hmm. Like that's just easier to do. Um, that this dovetails into an interesting discussion. I don't know if you saw. Did you see David Aldridge's article today on the Athletic about you know the NBA valuing defense? I've seen it. I haven't read it yet, though. So one of the things that comes up a lot in like a discussion of like this is defense is half the game. Why do offensive players get scored more? And it's interesting. The Nets are sort of an interesting test case study because the Nets are just all offense. Like 
clearly the offensive finishes were just ridiculous. Like they're going to score. They're going to be really, the question is, do they have a good enough defense to compensate? And if defense is half the game, literally, you would expect them to be basically a 500 team, but they're not going to be a 500 team. They're going to be better than a 500 team. I don't know how much better, but so then the question then becomes like, is defense really half the game? And actually is the NBA right in how they actually value players, defensive capabilities, you know, maybe the Nets, the other thing the Nets can do as like Trent said, is just to sort of underscore that, like, while we value defense in a certain way and certainly on an individual level, it's not actually half the game because you can play great defense and someone else can score on you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to, I tend to agree with you. I still think, I still think we overvalue offense just by a little bit. Um, but I don't think that's because of – I don't think it's a macro thing. I think it's because it's so much harder to be as impactful a player on defense as you can on offense in basketball. And it's and I think that's – part of that is because of the game itself. Um, like the ball moves faster than a person can. It always will. Um, but also because I don't think there's been like this like template created where we value the idea of being like a perfect defensive player – Whereas we've always had that on offense, right? Like if you grow up, you want to be the perfect offensive player. If you're, if, if you have aspirations in basketball, like that's what you're thinking about for the most part. Uh, most players that are defensively minded don't really realize that they have to be defensively minded um, in order to keep going in the game until later down the line. I think if you were somehow able to take like the deep, what's, what's the defensive equivalent of, of a superstar well, is it Draymond Green like I, you know what I mean I was just about to ask I mean this is where this conversation is going because you just wrote a big story about the Draymond generation yeah what if it is Draymond Green it could be um this doesn't really even relate to the story as much although I mean I would love to plug that later of course but, <laughs> um, but like I'm just thinking in terms of like level of skill and versatility and an ability to, to to change plays um, there aren't a lot of guys on defense that can change plays. Kawhi Leonard, when he wants to, can change plays. Anthony Davis can change plays. Those two are also really great offensive players, so they probably just don't even apply in this in this discussion, this hypothetical world where somebody is so good defensively that you have to have them on the court right? Um, when they don't have to be that good on offense. Um, Rudy Gobert? If you were some, yeah, yeah, Rudy Gobert. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good example. Like, if you were to put together a team – with Draymond Green, Rudy Gobert, <laughs> Lou Dort, Lou Dort, yeah, Lou Dort's a great one. Lou Dort is actually once again plugging my feature. Was featured in this article. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, one of, like the only the only guy in the world that could actually stop James Harden. I, I almost I almost resent that Harden is now in the East Coast because that kind of like it actually kind of I mean Lou's doing his own thing and he's going to be fine. He's going to get better. Like he's going to appreciate his own values in his own way but that kind of depreciates his value a little bit just the fact that they're not in the same conference yeah 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 (laughs) and then and two other like no like i'm gonna say russell westbrook but that's probably mean Um, ben simmons ben simmons Simmons. the archetype sure yeah yeah and all these guys have their different sort of offensive skills just as every good offensive player has their own defensive skills like what would that team look like how many games would they win I don't know. Could they win 50 games? Oof, I don't know. This whole idea of having no offensive ability. I, I love the idea of the extremes, right? Putting your five, right. arguably the five most one-dimensional defensive players in the league against 
three of the nets and then add two other players. But, um, you know, like pick, pick your offensive team. I don't know. I, I guess, I guess what I'm most excited for in like this, in this conversation is great because I think the idea that DA was going for also was contracts, right? Like that the mm-hmm. money is distributed to offense, not defense. And that you can stay on the court and in the league. I mean, think about someone like JJ Redick right now. He hasn't been able to, to do any, like legitimately anything on defense for over a decade. Complete liability. Whoa, 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 Davis, whoa, All right, whoa, all right. Davis whoa. Bertans got $80 million this summer. Let's go with that as there an example. Go. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Redick couldn't play in playoff games for the Sixers in the clutch because he was just the target of every ice. I mean, any time he was on the court, Brad Stevens or Nick Nurse found a way to have him in the, in the, in the pick and roll. Uh, or, you know, exploited. But point is, the point is, and I like, I'm a fan of JJ Redick, uh, 40 for the Sixers, but um, my, I guess the point is like, you can stay in the league for a long time with it, with an offensive skill. It is a lot harder to stay in the league for a long period of time with, with defense being your singular skill, whether that's shot blocking or perimeter D or whatever. And also I think your the physicality of being a great defensive player leads itself to a, a less longevity as well. And I think it's way, way harder I think about in what in the last dance, listening to Rodman talk about how he identified with defense and rebounding. He practiced it. He, he, he had friends come shitty basketball player friends come chuck shots up so he could figure out the way that the ball bounced off the rim. Right. Should have called and, me. And, yeah. I could have, could have had all of us on the, or, I don't know. I don't want to. <laughs> at least Mike and I could help out some bricks. Um, but you know, I think like that's, that is a way to practice one part of that slice of defense and rebounding. But for the most part, yeah, if basketball is a sport where you don't need anyone other than a ball or five on five and has a whole realm that you can practice within, offense is always going to be the thing where there's going to be more time that you can allocate to the, to the gift, you know, to the, to the pursuit um, than defense. So I think from, from just a very base level of how you start the game, you don't start with defensive slides. But you're you could, stoked. right? You could, you could, but you're not stoked to practice to run suicides and whatever right. you want to call it. I guess, I guess yeah. the question is, is that Also, cultural? that's not how people come to basketball. They don't come to basketball oftentimes, like, walking into a practice arena. You, 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 I, the first time I played basketball was at recess. Totally. I wasn't thinking about defense, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I guess that's the argument for, like, kind of the cultural argument, basically, that there is no, like, sort of... There's nobody to use the words that you use in your piece other than Draymond Green, who's making. Who was it that was quoted saying? I think it was Xavier Tillman. Like Draymond made defense cool again. Like mm-hmm. I guess you're saying there's no person that makes it cool. I, I mean that that to me is part of it. But I mean I think it's really more fundamental than that, which is in Da's article he makes this comparison to in, in baseball pitchers get paid, right? So and they're essentially defense, but like that is that basically answered your question for you. Pitchers control what happens the rest of the sequence. Yeah, but, but, Offense yeah, I, controls what happens. I don't I don't love analogies that pretend that, that put baseball with other sports. Why? Baseball is, is the is but, two people playing. Right? Yeah, but I, I think the the point I'm making is that mm-hmm. if in a in a offense versus defense matchup. The offense is the one that moves first. The offense acts, mm-hmm. the defense reacts. I mean, I still remember a youth coach being like kind of telling us how to play good defense. Like you got to make the you got to be the actor, not the reactor and like that was the key to defense is basically to flip it. But generally, the offense goes first. The offense controls the action and the defense is evaluated based on how well they react to it. It's like a pitcher controls what happens in baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, the hitter reacts to what the pitcher does. So obviously, whoever controls 
the the action you know they can just like sort of it's like an ace in tennis like if you just serve really hard and there's nothing someone can do about it so those players are obviously going to be more valued because they can control what happens and so to your question about like an all offense versus an all defense team I, I suspect that 70% of the time it would just go that the offense would score every single time the defense would miss mm-hmm. and then they'd fast break and it'd be like a blowout. Or, and then 30% of the time the de- the offense would miss the first shot and the defense would just score in the fast break, rinse, repeat. But mo- but the, it's a 70-30 type of thing. Like the, the offense controls what's happening. The defense is – the best they can do is put themselves in the best position to react, to create an output of zero. But the yeah. offense – I mean that that's the simple reason why I think. I think I think control is more I don't know if I don't know if the offense actually really controls the game. I think there are certain defenders that can control what the offense does. Draymond is one of them. Um Gobert to a lesser extent. I think Gobert is more of a reactive player. Even you know, I think I think we like you know you see certain things happen in a game. Like the smarter the smart players control the game, and they can do it on both ends. Like a defense can choose what they want to give you, right? Right, but they still have um, to that's give one way something. To control it. But they still have to give something. Yeah, but they they're the one making the, the decision in that in that. Mm-hmm. I think that's... I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I do, and I do think there's both. I just think the defense is a little bit more control than you're giving it credit for. Like for example, like I remember watching like. You know, Chris Paul was playing Luca, and you know Luca's the best at you know look offs and and getting you to think he's gonna do exactly what he's not gonna do. Um, and it's just like these guys watching each other's eyes. Right. So Chris Paul pretended to make a rotation, like he pretended to be fooled by something Luca did. And then jumped right back into play and 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 got the ball from him. Yeah, uh, yeah. and that doesn't happen on every possession. And Luca's going to win those battles most of the time. I just my point is just that like it's I think there's a little bit more of of a of a give and take. But right, yeah. Again, like there's just more there's more players on offense that can control the game than there are on defense, and we value teaching it more. I think offense. that I think that's true. I mean, yeah. What I'm saying is definitely an oversimplification. Like. Every possession is like a constant, like who's make someone's deciding, someone's deciding based on that decision, someone's deciding based on that. Like mm-hmm. the tricks you're talking about, like Luca is actually a really good example because Luca does a lot of the same things on offense with lookaways and mm-hmm. with sort of faking one way and positioning his body one way. And in a game that's become more dynamic, you're seeing more of that. But if the def- the offense can lose control and still get a shot off and make it. The defense can lose control, and I guess they're at the mercy of whether the offense makes a shot or not. So yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, good shot, better off. I mean, I mean yeah, better offense is still ultimately what this comes down to. Right. Um, we're gonna take a quick break, and then I want to talk about uh, the other team involved in the James Harden trade because I think I'm curious what you think about what's going on with them. Here at the Houston Rockets, uh, this is a limited upside podcast. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. 
Welcome back, Limit Upside Podcast. Ben Epstein, Sirit Soey from Yahoo Sports. This conversation has gone in some interesting directions uh, so far, but we talked a lot about the Brooklyn Nets and why they're interesting to you and sort of the larger ideas that underpin them. I want to talk a little bit about a team that I found really intriguing over the last two weeks, a team that's on the other end of the Brooklyn Nets transaction, the Houston Rockets who have won, I think they won six in a row, seven in a row before they lost uh, on Tuesday night or Wednesday night. They're playing again Thursday night. They have a team that is basically like kind of the screw you, I'm not done all-stars with John Wall, Oladipo, DeMarcus Cousins, Christian Wood. I mean, Jay Sean Tate is like kind of just this guy who came out of nowhere, you know, some of the other guys they've had were cast aside, like the team of cast aside, Sterling Brown, PJ Tucker. And it's like, it's a team where like kind of spite or like kind of trying to prove people wrong has gotten them an interesting energy and an interesting level of success. This is the type of thing that all athletes say, like, oh, I'm here to, I want to prove people wrong. Like I, I'm trying to go against what you thought of me. Why does it work for the Rockets or why is it working for the Rockets and it maybe doesn't work for other teams. It's like the big mystery that I've been trying to figure out. I think most people just don't have an end- endless reservoir of that that they can tap into, you know? Mm. Some people do, but I think it's tiring, you know? I think, and a lot of a lot of athletes, like, you know, during the during the draft process, one of the things I noticed, and I wonder if, I wonder why this is. Like, I wonder if NBA teams are starting to say, hey, maybe we want somebody with, more like positive intrinsic motivation um but they'll say things like you know i'm not trying to prove anybody wrong except myself or something like they'll go away from the idea of ever having a chip on their shoulder when in in reality i mean like everyone has a chip on their shoulder to some extent over something that's happened in their life like we all kind of negotiate it with ourselves and decide like you know what we want to get value from and like you know whose voices we want to give like you know, give weight to in our lives, but we all, we all have that. And like some, some athletes like are really looking for something. Like, I think I look at, I look at Fred Van Lee right now and I'm like, I, what's he going to do when everyone's like, yeah, this guy's great. Like, he's like, he's like, I, I've seen some quotes of, from him where he's like, oh yeah, like no one talks about the defense and it's like, Fred, yeah. Like, man, that's what we were talking about before, before. Like, right. Before, yeah. We weren't like scoring 50 points. <laughs> yeah. But, so I think some some people need it, right? But I think the thing that's happening with the Rockets too is not just that. I think they're also having fun. You know, they're getting to just play basketball. I think with like when I look at John Wall and some of the things that he said, it's like it's obviously like I think anybody in his position would 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 bristle at being um, I don't know like considered you know not valuable to play with. Um, you know, from James Harden's perspective, and it seems like you know they're all kind of bristling from that. But at the same time, like. I remember reading a quote where he was just like, I can jump again. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. he's just enjoying basketball. And I think these guys are like enjoying basketball after being in situations where they weren't necessarily able to. Um, like the, the Pacers were obviously like they were playing well, but like we know that Victor wanted out of there. So he's like now at the place where he wants to be. You know, Christian Wood signed there probably thinking he'd be on a contender, like walked into a bunch of drama. Um, you know, DeMarcus like has just dealt with his own injury issues and stuff as well. Like there's, a lot of guys in this team that like, I think just the, the idea of like being free to just, you know, like, that's like, let's not worry about the media. Let's not worry about winning a championship. We get to play some basketball right now. We get to get a little bit better each day. Like mm-hmm. just appreciating that seems to be 
honestly, at least to me, it seems like that's motivating them um, as well as, you know, wanting to prove people wrong. But I don't think, I I think, I think the difference between the Rockets is that they actually do have something to prove. A lot of people lose the things that they have to prove, you know, you know what I mean? Like, but these guys just literally just went through it. Like they just got dumped on on national TV. So like they are, like they're they're gonna have like the revenge body summer, but then they'll probably like, you know, start eating again soon. <laughs> the revenge body <laughs> summer. This is like, this is like their revenge body year. That's hilarious. That's a funny concept. Uh, I don't know, Ben. What do you think? Uh, why is it working? What do you notice when you watch the Rockets? Well, I love the Venn diagram where spite and joy meet in the middle. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's true here. I, I think, and you hear you. You think Clay said this the other night in an interview every game he misses, you know, every practice he misses hurts. You know, it's that, it's that when you remove the thing that you've put, you put every bit of your time into, there's no real replacing it. You know, that's just not mm-hmm. how human nature works. You just yearn for it. I also think there's something to be said for having Steven Silas get an actual opportunity to be a coach of a team and not mm-hmm. held hostage by, by Harden for the first month of his career as a head coach. Um, so there's something yeah. that, for playing for your coach mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I'm just gonna pull some. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I thought you were done. My bad. No, no, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, finish your thought. I want to know what you, had, what you were saying. Cool, yeah. So, hey, I mean, we yeah. said this was free form. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, welcome to Limited Upside, where we have no format. Um, but no, we, I, I do think there's also like this relationship to the actual personalities themselves. So, like, remove this, you know, the overarching concepts here, but look, Boogie three, four years ago, he was the best big man in the NBA, like Mm. arguably, Mm. right? There's some pedestal that you don't want to get. I mean, arguably offensively. He he could say to himself that he was, let's put it that way. As he should, as he should have at that time. That's right. Like when guys like Embiid, you and I know different. Yeah. we're playing against cousins they were the ones trying to show the world look i can beat boogie cousins and like there's a a pedestal if you will that they were on i also think that like there's this relationship to them being kentucky guys together and being blue chips and that they don't want to ever perceive themselves as being the weaker part of a basketball team and harden put them on quite literally put them on blast for not being up to the you know whatever the pedigree to play with him um, and when you're an NBA all-star and an Olympian and all the other attributes or accolades that those guys have had, like that's the last thing in the world that you, you want to hear, not that you need it for motivation. And then you couple that with Mike, you went over it, but like, they probably have seven journeymen. I don't know how many of those guys you mentioned played over in Europe, but a, a good chunk of them played either G league or Europe. Have any of them played in Europe? I'm trying to think. Oh, uh, Tucker did. Oh, um, yeah. Well, obviously, yeah. That, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Wood had his G League up and down. We're talking summer league. Players. And Christian Wood also, you know, had his ups and downs, too, in terms of, like, just trying to figure out what type right. of basketball player he was supposed to be. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, so, so here's like my... Your buckets of personality, mission, uh, personality and emphasis for what your, mm-hmm. goal, like, what your motivation is. And I think yeah. that's a cool mix right now is what we're seeing. Yeah, just to add a little bit more context too, like uh, Kelly Eco wrote a good piece about them them streaking, and like I'm just gonna quote some of it. He mm-hmm. talked about like two different interactions he had with Eric Gordon. One of them was in 2018. The team, you know, they were contending, but they were just, you know, it was like they they started the season sloppy and they just weren't playing that well. 
Um, I'm just not having fun, man. Gordon said that chilly night, and it was a chilly night. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I'm just not. This this sucks. Even the times where I have good games, we're just not using some guys the right way. Are we going to make the right sacrifices? Do we have the right attitude? Then Kelly writes, "Fast forward today, and Gordon is leaner, healthier, and most importantly, happier. He's having fun again." So. Some of that is even rubbing off on Silas. I'm having a blast, he said. I'm having fun. I'm not going to wait 20 years to be a head coach and not have fun doing it. Love even when times are hard and shaky as they were in the beginning, I'm going to have fun throughout. Whether it's about attacking the challenge, enjoying my staff and the team, it's going to be fun. I learned that from Donnie Nelson, my dad, and a lot of guys. It's possible to have fun in this position. How many times did they say fun? Both of them, you know? Yeah. Someone, someone's got their talking points down. I, I'm impressed by the PR team. Uh, no, but uh, no, it's it's a good. Shout out, Tracy. <laughs> uh, it's a good point. I mean, I I think a little. There, I think about this question on two levels. One, of course, is you know Wall having watched probably all his games pre his entire career, having you know been around him a little bit, having kind of understood. I mean, this is a guy who is famous for he he puts slights in his iPhone. Yeah, you know, so the idea of him trying to prove someone wrong is just sort of his like no normal mo, and I actually think it's interesting now. You, I wonder if like sort of the there are two questions I wonder with him. One is that like was the time away ultimately a blessing in disguise because he now had real reason to to your point earlier, sir, to like prove people wrong as opposed to trying to manufacture it by kind of taking a tweet and putting in his phone and all this other stuff. Um, and then I also wonder if like kind of. Because a lot of Wizards fans are just pissed at that trade for a lot of reasons, including me. Mm-hmm. Like, could he have done this in DC? Like, there's a part of me that like would love to think the answer is yes, but I kind of think the trade. I don't know if he could have done this while staying in DC. He kind of probably just needed to change the city. It would have been nice if we if Russell Westbrook sort of tapped into whatever energy John Wall had tapped into to yeah. like kind of have a healthy prove me wrong so that he'd be playing better. But you know. Like, I kind of think that he couldn't be doing, it wouldn't be this free if he hadn't been traded. Probably not. But I have actually wondered the same thing because it really felt like him and Beal had turned a corner in their relationship. Um, and if Wall was going to be healthy, which which he is, you know, those two aren't the perfect fit, but they they figured out really good ways to, like, I, I think they both kind of, like, scale merged a little bit, right, in order right. to be able to play together. Well, um, certainly better than Westbrook and Bradley Beal, and that's my third yeah, like, Russell Westbrook. Yeah, John had a willingness to play off the ball, and, like, you know, is just a little bit better as, as a shooter, although, like, you know, I don't really know if you comparing those two in, the, uh, in that regard, I guess, but yeah, like, they kind of, they figured some things out. And he's definitely having a better season than Westbrook is right now. But at the same time, like, I don't know if you can predict these things either. Like, when that trade happened, I was like, oh, my God. Like, like the the, the Rockets just, like, got swindled. Like, they just gave up an actual all-star point guard for a guy who hasn't played a game. And, like, we have no idea what he's going to look like. Right. Yeah, I mean, look, basketball is a weird. That's the other question I have about this Rockets team is like this idea of whether it's joy, spite, where, like what Ben said, you were saying where the Venn diagram meets in the middle. There's incentives on an individual level, and then there's that incentive on a team level where what is looked at as sort of a successful kind of balance for DeMarcus Cousins individually may or may not necessarily be the best thing for the Houston Rockets as a whole. And that conflict, 
I think has sunk a lot of teams with a lot of players in this situation where you're kind of either trying to prove people wrong or trying to have fun for yourself and your journey. But yet the Rockets have found a way where each of these individual journeys somehow adds up to where the Rockets as a team are performing better and everyone's happy. And I am kind of trying to figure out what it is about their situation that has caused that. What I would think that like too many people sort of trying to prove people wrong that I'm not done or whatever. How does that like actually work on a team level? How does the individual not supersede the team level? Uh, that's what I'm wondering why it's, that well, they've, was my got, they've got enough guys that are in contract years too, which will help as well. Like no one's really going to want to rock the boat. They all want to put a smile on their face and be good, good citizens as well. Right. Like DeMarcus is, DeMarcus is looking for his next NBA contract, right? If he, causes problems here or if if he is seen to cause problems right what what's next for him right right i guess like you know like if you're old, like pj tucker's waiting for a payday while being like you know an older guy as well so i think i i'm trying to remember how old pj is he's 35 um right. like that won't you know, he's he's looking for that too like in like just on like smaller levels too like we don't really know if Depot's going to stay um he might i don't know like dante exam another guy is kind of like looking to show people what he can do uh so i think i think that type of thing like it can i think there's this misconception that contract years like cause problems because of that um i think contract years oftentimes diffuse problems because nobody wants to be seen as one mm. that's a good point but how does that uh, apply to say wood who just signed his contract Wall, whose contract lasts until 2075. Um, oh, what's what's he got to be upset about? He's like he's having a season of his life. He just got a bunch of money, right? yeah. and everyone's but, talking about how awesome he is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like funny how those two opposite forces. It, it's just sort of yeah. funny to me, like how how everyone's individual agenda can sometimes add up to something greater than the sum of its parts, and sometimes totally. like things to like, something way less. It's less oddly, right? Like yeah. these things have kind of come together in a way that you don't really kind of you don't really expect it to. Like everyone has these different motivations that they're playing for, and they've kind of found a way to come together here, which is strange because they all they are different, right? Like that's yeah. why I think we see this mix of like you know, different emotions that are motivating them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ben, what do you think? Like, why why is it working for the whole of them, given yeah. that they all have, like, kind of their own individual, for lack of a better word, agendas? Yeah, it, it, I don't know. It's given me a lot of, like, a lot of the way that I thought about the Pacers post-Paul George trade. And maybe that has to do with hmm. the star divorcing the team and kind of, but, you know, finding a way to unsanctimoniously leave a city and burn bridges mm-hmm. and all those things. But I'm going to get Victor Oladipo in return and get Victor <laughs> even more on the nose uh, and hold people being a part of both equations there. But yeah, I mean, look, the, the Rockets were a team even before all the new players here, the they were a team, I suppose, that you would say was like knocking on the door without ever really being at the party. Uh, if that's a good way to describe it. I think they've always been close enough, but I don't think they were really a contender to win the title. Although you could say maybe the Chris Paul hamstring year. Yeah, I mean, they were up 3-2 on the Warriors. and mm-hmm. So, you know, you get you get close. And they were the only teams that even knocked on the door. Like, they were that's the true. only ones that, like, were willing to. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I, I will always appreciate those Rockets for that. Me too. Me too. Me too. Me too. And, 
Yeah. And ultimately, like, I, I think it's like you have some guys who went through that who have been uh, like Tucker, for example, and, and Gordon, who like know kind of a little bit of what it feels like to be like in a game seven of the Western Conference finals. Um, and and that, like that's a taste in something that like is a valuable experience when you have a, a new coach and then you bring in players trying to prove something. And all of a sudden, like the mixture of the sum of the parts makes for a competitive team. Plus, like on top of it, Look, the Western Conference right now is an oddly weighted um, standings. You look at it, they, even when they were at their worst, they looked up and saw they were, what, two, three games out of the play-in for the eight seed. So it's not like the, the bad start and all the shit that started the season for them mm-hmm. put them so far out of reach that it was like, all right, season's over. Yeah. Know, we're two months in. So I, I feel like that plus the fact that the whole league is a little sleepy in the beginning this year, that there was enough COVID-related misses of absences for players – it just gives you, it gave all the teams, but specifically the Rockets, more time to find an identity without having to necessarily have one coming into the season. And, and they're proving out right now that without a preseason and now all, each team getting a couple, you know, Sixers, I think, had their first legitimate practice two days ago um, in, in three weeks. You could tell the next game there were new sets, you know, like there was a, a zone that they put in place that worked really well that they got to, like, you know, a feature. And so I, I like that like, zone, by the way. That was a fun zone. Simmons and Tybal at the top. I love that. That was fun. Spending eight minutes without figuring it out was, was pretty fantastic. Too. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, neither here nor there. But the point right. is that, that kind of the elasticity of this, the whole world that we're in. Uh, right now created more time for Silas to figure out the right tone with his team for them to have some losses in the beginning of the year that ultimately weren't going to be deal breakers uh, and ultimately get past Harden and still have essentially a a new lease on the season with no skin lost. Were they going to be one of the top four seeds in the West? No. Were they going to compete with this roster for one of that seven, eight, nine, whatever playing? Like, yeah, probably. And that's exactly where they are. They they could be top four. I mean, yeah, they could right now. You're right. I don't think they will be, but yeah, I mean, you know, they remind me a little bit of uh, the Nuggets after Carmelo left, uh, just sort of the way that they're playing free. But what's interesting is that the Nuggets were sort of those, that team was sort of a team of guys who hadn't really proved it yet. And the Rockets are full of names that are trying to reprove it. So it's just, it's interesting. Um, I want to leave you guys with one last question and thought, which relates to practice time. Uh, and maybe a, this is a premise that is not actually true. So I'm going to, that's what I do sometimes with you, Sierra. I just ask you things and you tell me if I'm off base or not. Don't you think it's interesting that this rookie class seems more NBA ready than – I'm not saying better overall, but at least more NBA ready after not having a training camp? What's going on there? Do you agree with that premise or solid? Second of all, if you do, why is that? Hmm. Um. Yeah, I think I think some players look really great and have looked really great since the season started. Obviously, Halliburton. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't know. I don't think I don't think I saw Wiseman come in. And, and like, he was obviously, like, you know, you felt his presence, but he's a little rusty. Um, Anthony Edwards a little rusty. Uh, but at the same time, like, they did have a lot of time to work out as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, Wiseman, I think, is sort of the exception. I've no, I think, but like, like let's let's go down the list. I mean, mm-hmm. Edwards now is basically Minnesota's primary ball handler. They suck, right? But, 
Um, who's the third pick? Lamelo Ball. I mean, he seems pretty NBA ready right now. Yeah, Lamelo's uh, <laughs> looking super <laughs> yeah. NBA ready. Isaac Okoro, like he's coming in. He's like Cleveland's best wing defender already. Um, Denny Avdia is starting for the Wizards and is also probably their best defender. Mm-hmm. We talked about Halliburton. Um, Emmanuel Quigley he's just sort of walked into the yeah. Knicks uh, starting line. Who was the fourth pick? Why am I not remembering this draft? Maybe I should just look it up. Patrick Williams. He's, he's starting, you know, and he's kind of there. I think it's less almost like sort of how good they are and more um, just like how NBA, how they're kind of like Devin Vassell is like already looks like he he knows the defensive rotations. The things that he you was would, going to, though, that guy is awesome. Yeah, he's yeah. So good. Yeah, Tyrese Maxey, uh, Cole Anthony yeah. now playing. No, yeah, you're right. You're Peyton, right. Peyton you're Pritchard right. just walking into to Boston. No, these guys are like there's there's guys that are making like real contributions on playoff teams, like playing really right. really well. And you always get a subset of that, but I the reason I asked I asked the question is because this was supposed to be the like kind of I mean your guy Xavier Tillman that you wrote about. Um, yeah. This was supposed to be the year that like was going to suck for rookies because they didn't have time to transition with the NBA teams with training camp. And so the question, the fact that there are so many that are sort of, it's not just that they're succeeding, is that they're sort of walking in and they seem like they sort of pick it all up already. It kind of makes me wonder if NBA teams have been developing rookies all wrong for 30 years. That like the time when they get the less time with them, the year they get the least time with them is when they look the most ready. I was kind of wonder if like kind of maybe the NBA has got to reevaluate how they bring rookies in or maybe if this is like sort of just a reflection of the way the league has changed. And, you know, we used to talk at SB Nation all the time about digital native talent, right? Maybe mm-hmm. just these basketball, these young players are just like modern game native in a way that, yeah. you know, the guys who've been in the league yeah. for six years have to learn. I don't know. Like, but I just think it's an interesting thing that's happening. Well, I'd also be curious too, like, what amount of time? So we talked about additional time spent with their NBA team that drafted them, but without having March Madness or any actual college basketball season, and most of these folks having decided they were going pro at that point prior to <laughs> second semester starting, how many of them got into NBA shape, NBA training months and mm-hmm. months prior to to what they normally would? And so they actually kind of in a weird way had a longer you know, NBA development, physically, especially physically. I think, I think that's the one thing that stood out with all these guys we're mentioning. Like they, they all look the part, like mm-hmm. there's a muscular relationship and like athleticism and, and just like physicality that they all have. Literally everybody we just mentioned, it fits that mold kind of. And I think maybe that has something to do with not having to dabble in college hoops for another four months. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, yeah and not have all those restrictions about like how you can work out and like how long and who and all this stuff no now they're just a life like they sign with agencies right away and then the agency gets you together with you know like they can either you find a trainer or they find you a trainer and they can send you a bunch of stuff and like they you know like that process starts has like started way earlier for for a lot of guys Hmm. i also think I think uh, coming into the league now, like just for the last few years, players have just been way more skilled in general. Like skill development in general has just never been better. So the sooner you can kind of get in on that, the better, I guess. But I don't know. These are all just guesses. 
It's an interesting thing I'd love to see. I'm giving you a story idea, I know, but um, I'd love to see, like, kind of this... this oh, explore- it really takes me back, Mark. It's, <laughs> <laughs> like, an interesting... I wonder, too, if just... I mean, to your point about, like, skills being developed, I think what is considered an MBA skill, and this is, again, like, something I've been... that will go in the book somewhere that I'm trying to work through, is, like... The things that are skills that you need in the MBA are changing so fast mm-hmm. that not ha- these guys there's you're they're almost starting at the same point as a normal MBA player in terms of like you talk about like kind of the Draymond Greens this future right that you just write like all the guys you profile in those that story like were guys that are pretty new to the league uh, Grant Williams Lou Dort. Uh, Xavier Tillman, there was someone else that I'm kind of blanking on. Um, these are guys that have come in only in the last few years. And if you ask, like, sort of, I guess, I guess, like, kind of the, the the old guy who's kind of turning to this type of player now is like a Thaddeus Young. Or, but I'm just trying to think if you sort of took like a guy who has been in the league for eight years playing like a traditional four spot. I like, I keep remembering when the wizards tried to make Chris Humphrey shoot threes one year and it just like kind of didn't quite land. The experience you've had playing one way works against you. And so all these prospects are mm-hmm. more of a blank slate and then they can come yeah, in. With the no, game. I'm learning. Right. So I wonder if that's another factor as well, because it is striking to me how many of these guys like kind of just get NBA defense, which is supposed to be the thing that rookies yeah. take forever to pick up. And I think a big reason is that what we think of as good NBA defense and the skills required are just not the same as it used to be. Yeah. And I think they're, they're also just playing way more pick and roll prior to the NBA than they were before, mm-hmm. whether that's in like in their own manufactured settings or because colleges are doing it more or like these AAU programs that are pretty much an NBA factory, like they're, they're running NBA stuff as well. So like, I think, I think like if you're, if you're 14 or 15 right now and you're like, I don't know, like Brad, like you're Bradley Beal or somebody like, not like, not like Zion where you like, you know, he's in the NBA, but like somebody who's like looking at their, like, actually, you know what? I don't know what Bradley was doing. He was 14 or 15. I'm just, you know, he was pretty highly you know, ranked, but uh, you're talking about somebody you know, who's like a four star, like a Donovan Mitchell or Tatum, Tatum. Okay. Let's do Tatum. Like Tatum, who we know is no, is good, but like, we don't really know what he's going to be. If you're him, you know you're gonna like as long as things go go right, like you're aiming for the NBA. So why wouldn't everything you do be designed to get you there? Right. And you have so many more resources than you used to. Um, in terms of like people that are just willing to train you, I think there's just so much more stuff online. You can watch like every game too, whereas it used to be like guys grew up watching the stars or like like occasionally caught a game. That's a good point, like, actually. There's tape study that. you can do. Like there's th- just think about like you and I sitting here with our like basketball Neanderthal brains that will like, if we put us on a court, not even just because of size disadvantage, just right. because like our brains wouldn't work the same way as these guys are able to, while knowing nothing about the game, still understand so much more about the game than we would have been able to like 10, 20 years That's ago. A good point. That obviously applies for these guys as well on a much more granular level. Cause they really care about like the tiny little details, right? Like you can figure out so much about like what your footwork should look like when you know, you're trying to extend out to three point range and stuff. And like, there's a lot of snake oil salesmen as well. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that are like coming up with like really interesting ideas on how to, how to help people improve. Right. Like 
just in general in life, like we were like growth hacking in general and like every, in every industry, every type of person is like looking for a way to optimize themselves right now. Right. Like, so obviously somebody as motivated as an NBA athlete, like you've just never had, you've never had more that you can prepare yourself with even mentally. Like they Mm -hmm. think I was talking to Marcus Howard and like the ways that he was like kind of preparing for the mental grind for the NBA was really interesting to me. Like, obviously it's not something you can really be ready for until you get there, but it's still like, it's, if, if you're interested in it, you can read about it. Like you can players be candid on podcasts about it. Like you can talk to guys, like you can can read other types of books. I think the key thing. Yeah. Yeah, You can see it. You can see it in film. Yeah. And soon you can experience it with virtual reality, but that's a whole separate, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. That's I hadn't, that makes it see, this is why I love reading your work is because like that totally makes sense to me. Like just if you have more information available, you're going to be more informed <laughs> to play basketball. <laughs> kind of made sense on a very simple level. <laughs> but again, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, all right. Uh, ben, you got anything else that is interesting to you? No, no. I mean, Sixers play the Nets on, uh, I think it's Saturday this weekend. I'm excited to see what that game looks like. I think, I think, there's a lot of what I would consider tension between we talked about defense versus offense. Well, I'm excited to see a lot of folks who wanted the Sixers to trade for James Harden. It kind of, so it's a weird synergistic matchup because then it's, you know, KD with his first matchup with Ben Simmons in the Eastern conference now and all these kind of things that I think are, are going to be fun to watch. Um, yeah. so I'm looking for that game for sure. And that, that'll be another one where the Nets show, show up and play. Defense. Yeah. Yeah. So. Ben Adebayo had a career high against, against this Nets defense. So yep. I cannot wait to see which one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For sure. For sure. And I, I'd imagine that the Sixers will rest him. It's uh two 30 in the afternoon Pacific time on the fourth, the Sixers play Portland tonight. Portland's going to be without, I think most of their team uh, it looks like. Um, and so I'd be curious if the Sixers rest Joe up night and, and let him get, rested for the Saturday matchup, but um, well, excited to, to see how this continues to progress. I think, and I think in general, it's fun that we're able to talk about both the Nets and Rockets with as much curiosity and, uh, and enthusiasm because they kind of represent the poles of the league. And despite their, their weird interconnected relationship with Harden are very yeah. different places. It'll good to show that uh, there's, a, there's interest and enthusiasm on both ends. If you're curious what like a typical editor call, editor to kind of writer call used to look like between us, it was basically like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a good old days. It was basically we just recorded all of those. I might do I still have them? No, I don't. I wouldn't have secretly recorded them. Uh <laughs> no, I don't have them. I, I we should have. We should <laughs> no, have. Now I kinda of wish this was on video because of the look. <laughs> <laughs> I deserved it. I deserved it. <laughs> um, Sarah Tully, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we'll be back. I think early next week we're going to have, you know, one league we haven't talked about on the pod much. We're going to talk about on Monday, maybe Tuesday, is the WNBA had quite a hell of an offseason. We're going to get our WNBA correspondents, Matt and Sabrina, back on the show next week. Uh, so let's stay tuned for that to kind of get through. Candace Parker, the, the Chicago Sky now. That's pretty cool. Uh, and the Mystics signing my favorite role player in the entire world. Very excited about that. That would be Alicia Clark. Uh, so we'll talk about that on Monday. Until then, though, Ben, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. It's Limit Upside Podcast. I thought you were throwing it over to me. 
I love it. Yeah, look at look at how we look at how we script these endings. This is the limited upside <laughs> podcast. Hey guys, thanks for tuning into the limited upside podcast. There you go. <laughs> I won't be here next week, but Mike and Ben will be. Uh, I think you guys should definitely tune in. Love, uh, definitely curious to hear what Matt has to say. Nice rap. Perfect. Is that okay? No, you got so it. I feel like I kind of stopped in the middle. I feel like I I, I was. All right. Hey, Varun, can you just put the music on right now? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you next time. 